Becca. Let's go back to the cloud. Let's talk about the infrastructure providers, right? The cloud titans out there. Um, I've followed lots of your coverage that has kind of said, you know, com computing is, is kind of a commodity market now, right? Whether you're working with Azure, whether you're working with, you know, AWS, whether you're working with Google, it doesn't matter. Um, the computing costs themselves are becoming more commoditized. It seems like it's more about the platform and, and what the uniqueness of Google can offer you versus what Amazon versus one of the other cloud providers can, can provide. Uh, how are these companies, you know, these, these are the big three, right? We've got the big three out there that is doing a good portion of the computing in the cloud right now. How do they differentiate each other from one another? And then how are they actually making their money? Where is the majority of their profits actually coming from? Ooh, um, so, so that's a, a really good question. But, but yeah, um, to be clear, right, the IaaS portion, which is the, the kind of buying the hardware. Uh, infrastructure portion, as a service, right? IaaS, yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Infrastructure as a service has really become commoditized, as it should and as we kind of all knew it was eventually going to be. Um, it's it's really been there for a while. Um, the real value in in these platforms comes from the platforms that they offer, right? The services that I sub subscribe to, um, and then philosophically, I think there's a philosophical kind of difference between the big three. Um, and 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 here's your your five second buyer's guide. Are you a Microsoft Enterprise customer and very comfortable with the Microsoft ecosystem? Azure is a great place for you to be. Are you a big software development shop? You've got a ton of software developers and you probably adopted DevOps relatively early on. Amazon is built for you. Are you a big proponent of open source and open source is where you live? Google's a great cloud, right? That's not, don't make a decision based on, on my five seconds, but, but that kind of is a big differentiators between each of the providers, right? Um, Microsoft Azure is absolutely built on the back of all of the cloud services that Microsoft has been offering to its consumers for decades. Um, and the way you interact with Microsoft through the procurement process matches the same way you interact with Microsoft as you would go through an ELA. There are additional ELA benefits um, for Azure that don't exist in the other two platforms. It's how Microsoft has been built and thus it's the language that they speak. And so if you're comfortable with that language, that makes a big difference. Um, Amazon comes from kind of the, the hyper digital world, right? Um, meeting the needs of companies that start in a garage and build in a garage and then turn into something greater than that on a Monday morning. Um, and so software developers around the world have become very comfortable with Amazon, AWS, and and. And really that's, when you say the cloud, that's the first name that pops into their head, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then Google is kind of the, the, the wild card, kind of the outlier, right? Um, Google is the least afraid to take a chance, right? Um, the fastest to adopt open source. And if you roll your own, Google's a very comfortable place to be. Um, you know, the, it's, it's, it's kind of the, the, uh, the story of the three bears, right? Mama bear, papa bear, and baby bear. This one's too hard. This one's too soft. This one's just right. And you kind of have to go through that uh, to find to find which one's comfortable for you. And if at the end of it, you find these aren't really comfortable for me, um, there's an infinite number of additional clouds. They're not the only game in town. And, and what we're finding is once you get comfortable with one, do not stop. Don't pause. Don't slow down at all. Pick another one but which the second most comfortable because it diversification is really, really important, right? They all speak cloud, but they speak different dialects. So be prepared. But, um, but that diversification is important because um, they're not all 
to market at the same time. They're not all to market with the same capability at the same level, at the same maturity, at the same kind of ease of use or best fit. Um, and if you become fluent in more than one cloud, more than one hyperscaler, um, you have the ability to make decisions about putting the right application and the right data in the right place for the right use case. Um, and some of it may be as simple as it's a very simple use case. It's well understood by all the hyperscalers, but you have a, a very specific region requirement. And Azure has a data center closer to your customer um, than Amazon does, or you may have a data sovereignty issue that's met by one of them better than the other within a particular nation, because that's also a huge, um, a huge issue and a huge piece of conversation and, and why it really makes sense to be on top of, of kind of that multi-cloud experience. So know thyself, but find the solution that fits best for your unique needs or your organizations. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And data sovereignty is a big piece of that. Um, so, so know thyself means um, not just know what you do, but know what you should be doing, what you could be doing, and what you will be doing. Um, and in many cases, like data sovereignty, what you must be doing, mm -hmm. right? Because I may not be aware of it today. That doesn't mean I, that it doesn't exist. Can you chat a little bit more about the open source piece of this? You know, this is where you open up uh, the, the code for everybody to see. People can kind of build things that are similar. I mean, we're starting to see publicly traded companies that are open source, right? MongoDB. Uh, Elastic, um, Confluent, you know, others are out there and, you know, it's out there, you know, they, they tend to have a service or kind of an enterprise plan that's um, not just a free version where you can do it all on your own, but if you want a little bit of help with things or uh, or other features, you, you pay for that. Are, are, I don't know how to ask the question, but are you seeing open source as opposed to like something that's complete handholding at the enterprise level? Is this gaining a lot of adoption right now? Um, so, so, uh, yeah, so open source has a bunch of advantages and a bunch of disadvantages, right? It's, there's no, there's no kind of clear, uh, one size fits all choice, but, but, um, but open source is what it says on the box, right? The source code itself is open. You can freely copy it. You can freely modify it and you can freely use it. Um, it is, uh, what, what do they say? It is, it is free as in. Oh, I, I now forget the tagline for open source, but but it's kind of like free as an opinion. You're allowed to have one. Everyone can have one. Yours can differ from mine. None of it makes it right, um, and it doesn't necessarily make it well informed. Um, the advantage to open source. Um, let's talk about security for a minute. Um, anyone can audit the code at any time for any reason. This idea that closed sources is somehow um, more secure because it is closed source um, doesn't really hold water. Um, any large open source project simply has so many eyes on the source code. It's not it's not necessarily secure, um, but large security holes are generally found very 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 quickly and patched by the community equally quickly. Uh, the downside is there's also a ton of chaos because of that. If I have fifty thousand developers that report to no central authority whatsoever. There's no, there's no team leader, right? That are submitting uh, changes uh, that then have to get voted or not voted to be incorp in, in, incorporated in the, the core of the code. There's a level of chaos there that can be very hard to follow if open source is, uh, you know, you're kind of new to open source. That being said, um, the advantages are, uh, I can try something by downloading code incorporating it into an application and publishing the application and see if it works. I don't have to talk to a salesperson. I don't have to go through procurement. 
I can simply do something because the open source library or application or framework already exists. Now, where we get into trouble is I now want to take that and go into production, or I want to scale that in a large way. Um, a lot of open source works great out of the box. And when we decide to scale it, it the fragility of the open source becomes apparent. Uh, Kubernetes is a fantastic example of this. Um, it is awesome out of the box. I run a little lab at home. Um, my scale is six nodes total, end of statement. Um, when you're moving to 600 nodes, it's extremely fragile. 60 nodes, extremely fragile. And what we all found out was um, it was really easy to run in the lab. It was really easy to run in the dev environment. And then when we put it in production and we and we let half a million users have at it, it started to fall over. And that's where some of the open source companies come with their with their commercial offering. Here's our here's open source Kubernetes, but here's our our paid management tool. Here's open source Ansible. It's a really good example, right? For managing all of your nodes, Ansible is a wonderful tool, wonderful piece of software. Here's our closed source tower for managing and orchestrating Ansible at scale, right? Um, so that's kind of one version of your publicly traded open source companies. The second is um, same exact code, doesn't matter, right? Um, the commercial side will have support. I can pick up the phone and call someone. That's so critical when it's in production and it's a, and it goes down on a Friday night and the people that have been doing what's effect, what is effectively best effort and it's very good effort to keep it running don't know where to go from here. Having someone that's, that's right there next to the code, that's right there next to the development team, that's right there next to the de decision makers, um, pick up the phone and help work through it is a, a huge value and, and you're, you're you're really buying comfort before anything else you're buying insurance right the insurance that i'm not alone that i'm not having to look through and try stuff i found on google at three o'clock in the morning when my production is down <laughs> three in the afternoon when it's much more stressful um and so i i love to see these companies go public um and, and it's it's kind of the ultimate um you know, almost the ultimate in capitalism because the cream is rising to the top. It's all open source, right? So they're not winning on price, right? They're not getting big based on price. They're getting big based on the package. They're getting big based on the product itself, right? It's kind of the Michelin star uh, uh, rule, right? Um, if you're familiar with the Michelin program, uh, started by the tire company of all things, right? As part of a kind of a travel guide, but very, very French in that, um, they don't care what the outside of the building looks like. They don't care how good the parking is, right? All the things that Fromers points out. They don't care about what the neighborhood is, whether you can leave your, your $150,000 uh, Mercedes in the parking lot or not. What they care about is what is the quality of the food on the plate? That's how you get one Michelin star, right? The quality of the food on the plate. It can be a roadside cart that someone pushes down the road and is in a different place every day and you have to deal with exhaust fumes but it is the greatest roast chicken you've ever had in your life. That'll get you a mission start. Okay, right? so open, open source. So, so step one, you know, be, move fast and break things. Uh, step two, if you do break things, have someone you can call on the phone. Let's talk about uh, the third step of that too, maybe the protection, the security piece of this, right? Open source, cybersecurity, you see uh, Kubernetes. You mentioned Kubernetes right now and containers and kind of, you had kind of these platforms like Netflix that were the early adopters of this. You realize you could move fast. You could build things incredibly quickly. By doing it this way but then of course there's also the cybersecurity protection which is even more complicated we've seen companies like crowdstrike that have taken advantage of this have secured endpoints uh for remote workforce for kubernetes you know containers anything else like that 
What's your take on the cybersecurity industry right now? It seems like Microsoft has been spending a ton of money on addressing security protections, um, but it's also a much, much harder world to defend out there, right? Uh, it's infinitely harder. And AI and quantum computing is going to, to just make it worse, right? Um, the, the good news is quantum computing is very, very, very expensive. The bad news is um, a lot of the large hacking groups are nation states. They're funded by governments themselves, and so budgetary concerns aren't such a big deal. On the other hand, um, a lot of those that go after private organizations, especially the the kind of SMB and, and small enterprises, um, are not are not necessarily nation states, right? If your critical infrastructure doesn't matter your size, you're probably going to be attacked. Um, but but those are starting to be run like businesses. Uh, to kind of look back, right when I got started. Um, <laughs> It was very similar to the to the old movie Hackers. I don't mean anything you did. I just mean the actors themselves were people trying to just experiment, just kind of dig in, right? If you watch um, uh, the there was there were a couple of movies made about Kevin Mitnick, right? Mitnick was just experimenting, right? He found his way in. Uh, Sean Polson, um, kind of same thing, right? He found his way in. Um, these were individuals that were hacking their way in. Um, and experimenting. Some of them were malicious, no doubt. But today, these things are run like businesses, right? They have board meetings. They have P&Ls, right? So, so it is important the barrier, for, the cost barrier for entry um, within security. But outside of that, um, we have this thing now called zero trust that I'm certain all of your listeners have have heard in passing, much like digital transformation. Zero trust is not a product any more than neither is digital transformation. It is not a product, it is a philosophy. And the philosophy is I can trust nothing, thus I verify absolutely everything. I verify that that person at that place, at that time with that application is all authorized, true and correct, that what they are requesting is in line with what they have requested in the past, that the, the query that's coming through that request is properly formed and properly intentioned, very important on the intention part, and that the response back from the application matches the request. And I do that every time it's requested. Even if there's no ne not necessarily a user, but it's an automated system making that request, I still do not trust any piece of that just because I've seen one or more pieces before. Um, the goal here is to is to effectively minimize the blast radius when something goes wrong. That's really the goal with zero trust, right? Um, it used to be I trusted everything that was in the, within the boundaries of my organization. I own this network. I trust this network. Well, that only works until one piece of that network is compromised. And if I can trust that network, all my data goes away through that compromised piece. By saying I trust nothing, I don't trust anything at all. I no longer trust the application itself. And so I'm. the goal is to inspect everything. The goal is to ask a lot of questions. Now, that is that feasible? Is that is that real? N no. But from an architectural standpoint, we then go, okay, what is reasonable? What is feasible within the context of, of zero trust? And how do I engineer this? So as I'm doing new things, as I'm doing additional things, as I'm updating things, I'm not... Um, failing to consider the ramifications of the blast radius. If something goes wrong, how bad will it be? Um, and that's really kind of the fundamental of, of the security questions we need to be asking ourselves today, um, especially with RSA, you know, right around the corner for us. Minimize the blast radius. I love it. Keep the explosions to a minimum so there's no collateral damage that comes from this. 
it might be the perfect segue to one of the other topics I wanted to ask you about. Uh, this was something you mentioned on a previous live stream that when I heard you mention it, I, I literally almost spit out my coffee from laughing. It was so funny. But, uh, you know, it was about the metaverse. You know, you said that you wanted to see the metaverse die a, a fiery death, Howard, was the perfect quote that you used for it. Uh, my goodness, what what a what a project! You know, Mark Zuckerberg is spending thirty billion dollars a year on capital expenditures. I would say that most people are still not experiencing the metaverse, except for a time or two here or there at a conference. Uh, but you know, there's still kind of the infinite promise of this becoming the Ready Player One oasis that's out there. Uh, tell me more about the fiery death, you know, and then also let's talk about how we could potentially even control the metaverse if that's even possible at all. Uh, from well, collateral damage and you know blast radius is getting completely out of sure, hand out sure um so i i think conceptually the metaverse is is a fantastic idea and and it really like it was called the metaverse in the book snow crash back in i think i think neil stevenson wrote it in 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 1989 it might have been 1987 um uh, it's a it's a it's a book that got me started on the path that i that, that my career chose right um it, it, it's not particularly like uh, innovative from a writing standpoint that the protagonist name is hero protagonist um, <laughs> but it's a ton of fun and the metaverse exists and it exists in kind of the way um musk saw it um you know and he, and he wrote it three decades before ready player one or two decades two and a half decades before ready player one but ready player one another kind of virtual world that you exist in if we look at technology where technology is going what the internet provides to us i think that virtual world is the next evolution of the internet. I think Zuckerberg was real smart to key in on that. I think, I and I think he picked exactly the right time and place. Um, you know, bought Oculus, right? Founded by John Carmack, the the creator of Doom, um, and, and really set down a path of saying this this is the next evolution of this kind of thing that started as static pages that became dynamic pages that is now the world we. We, we kind of seamlessly interact with. I don't think so much about, can I get, I need to buy this thing. Let's go, let's get the keys. Let's put on my shoes. Let's get in the car. Let's drive to a store. What store carries it? Let's go look at five stores. Even if I'm going to go to the local target, I check their online stock first, right? Um, so what's the next version of that? Well, the next version of that is, can I interact with that much like I interact with the real world? And that's effectively what the metaverse is trying to give to us. I have no problem with any of that. The problem that I have is the internet should not be controlled by one person. And if the metaverse is the next version of the internet, and that is controlled by the corporation Meta, we will create a dystopian society. Uh, of that, I am I am totally sure. As I said, following that quote, um, there is not a single movie you watch that has a virtual world in it where the real world isn't a complete dystopia. Right. And so that's really my concern. We've, we've already seen the danger of giving Facebook all of the data that it has on us as it sits, much less, you know, add in Instagram and the other apps that they own. Um, I don't want to give them the totality of the Internet. Um, does that mean the technology is flawed? Absolutely not. But there needs to be a, an open, shared, distributed version of it. Um, I'd love to see that be Web 3.0, right? Web 3.0 is is a dis truly distributed version of the internet where we all, we being the people, all control it and is and is democratized. Um, and that's what has to happen with a virtual world that we interact in. 
how about the digital advertising piece of this? A lot of the thesis that I see on the metaverse becoming a big deal, how is it going to be subsidized slash funded? And what's the enterprise you know, involvement in all of this? It, it tends to be that same progression like you just mentioned, right? We now have uh, the Facebooks of the world, you know, the targeted advertisements of the world that appeal to who you personally are, uh, what it knows about me as my demographic or my previous web behavior to put the perfect ad on the sidebar of whatever site that I'm, that I'm visiting. And the metaverse would be the next evolution of that. You know, now I've got VR head, headset on, there's going to be a Coca-Cola sign in whatever place that I am or anything like that. Is this truly going to subsidize the metaverse, just like advertising subsidized uh, publishing of content on the internet? Or how, how do you see this progressing? Who's going to pay for it? How do companies make money yeah. from this? Kind of an open-ended question, but what do you, what do you think about that? One, Harvey? Well, well that, that's fundamentally the problem, right? The, the fundamental problem with Web 3.0 in any of its forms is there isn't anybody to pay for, pay for it. Right. Um, and uh, I, I love being a bleeding heart liberal and I love being kind of a, a, a fan of open source and a fan of openness and a fan of democratization and a fan of all of these things, but ultimately somebody has to pay for it. Right. And, and none of us are in a position where we want to pay, um, pay per click, right? Oh, I want to go visit, you know, amazon.com. Even if I don't buy anything, well, I'm sorry, but you have to pay to get into Amazon because, Amazon no longer has the advertising that pays for it, right? On the internet, if you are getting something for free, anything at all, you are the product, not the thing you're receiving for free, right? So google.com is not free. It's just you're the product, not the search. The search is the mechanism that keeps you engaged and you connected so they can connect, collect data about you that they sell to advertisers, and whether we've actively made the decision that that's okay or passively made the decision that we'll deal with, that we'll settle for it, it doesn't really change the fact that the reality is I'm the product, right? So the metaverse is going to have to be, be paid for and it's going to have to be paid for using advertising. It's going to have to be subsidized in many, many, many ways. And I doubt we're all going to be okay with the added microtransaction cost that the advertising offsets. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so whatever the, whatever that, that, uh, virtual world is, it's going to have to be subsidized in some way. Um, let's be honest though, <clears throat> the internet was not built by advertising. The internet is supported now by advertising. The internet was built by porn as was many, 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 many other technologies. Um, as much as I, as I hate to say it, that's the big moneymaker out there in, in kind of advancing technology, HD cameras, for example, which is a horrible, horrible thing. Um, so, so, but, but ultimately someone has to pay for it. Um, and the consumer generally avoids being the one to pay for it. Mm. Um, in which case we will, we will again be the product. Um, and, and I say that fully aware that I don't really want to pay another hundred dollars a month to, ha to have access to an internet that is without advertising. Um, because I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that my, that, 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 that those pieces of my data are really worth the hundred dollars. I can, I can easily click delete on an email. Um, now, I think there's privacy issues that we need to be aware of, right? Um, the ability to predict uh, someone's health based on their buying patterns changing. Um, I think that that supersedes the value of like Amazon.com using that to tell me, hey, we noticed you were shopping for Levi's. We have a better price on Levi's. Um, like there's some, there's some really innovative uses of that data that is very revealing and very problematic. And that's the sort of stuff that needs to be legislated, right? Um, um, access to healthcare is something I think is really important for all of the, for the entirety of the world. 
Um, and, and, you know, we really need to limit how we make decisions for people's health and wellness and well-being based on their, um, you know, the, the data that's available to them in the World Wide Web. Absolutely. And Howard, as we close this out, you know, I, I really love having you on the show. I mean, like you've just been right at the front line, like we said earlier, of innovation in technology. And it's something that's continually cutting edge. It's always changing. I want to bring in the hype cycle at this point. You know, the hype cycle, the Gardner hype cycle kind of shows that there's going to be a lot of expectations for new technology. Sometimes they don't live up to what they're expected to, at least right out of the gate. There's kind of this uh, this downfall of, of those expectations, and then they kind of sustainably grow later on over time. The frame that I want to use that for this, for this final question is, as someone who sees the new technologies that are getting that are being deployed and adopted out there, can you tell me either something that has too much expectations baked into it right now, where everyone thinks that all technology is awesome, this is going to be the next biggest thing in the world, and you kind of look at that with a, a raised eyebrow and saying, ah, I'm not really sure about that. Or the other side of the question is, is there something that's not getting enough attention just yet that you're really excited about? You can take it either way, but you, you know, how are you riding up and down the hype cycle of what's going on out there? Um, well, well I, I have to actually say that the answer is the same for both of them. Um, and it is in fact AI. Um, we jump on the bandwagon for AI almost instantly for any individual use. We ride the hype, right? We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about language learning models here. Um, and then we find out it's not all it's cracked up to be and then run away, right? Um, right now, there's a ton of hype on LLM. A and the thing that I'm not hearing talked about enough is the lack of trust. Solve the trust problem, it's underfunded. Don't solve the trust problem, it's it's just a hype cycle, right? Um, and I think we do that a lot. Um, there's there's a, a PhD student that I was working with in um, Tokyo who was trying to figure out how to quantify trust Think about it. Uh, define trust for me. Right? Score then, of accuracy. Score of accuracy or predictions of what it's doing, what you expect. Is that? But but I don't. But that's not how. That's not how I define trust. Trust is my. Do I believe you do what you say you will do? But that's a really. That's even a squidgy statement, right? Trust is a human emotion that we built for other humans, that we have since applied to corporations, which are as far from human as you could get until we have AI, which is even further from human, right? And yet trust is integral to the human experience. Um, and, and something that we just, we know it when we see it, which makes it nearly impossible to build to trust. And, and we're now to the point where, like if I was to invest in something, I would invest in, in, I would invest in an AI company that had a chief trust officer or something along that lines, right? Be, this is beyond ethics. <clears throat> Um, because I need to trust that the model is being built in a way that that doesn't isn't free from bias. That's ridiculous, but understands its bias. I, I need to be able to trust that the data that's that it's giving to me, even it can give me some sort of confidence level and not not tell me as though it is always true, right? Um, I, I need to be able to trust artificial intelligence, and today I cannot. And and I don't mean I need to be able to trust that it won't take over the world. I don't actually care. I need to be able to trust that it's not lying when it says two plus two is five. So that would be the big thing for me. Well, it's a fascinating discussion here. Again, Howard Holton is the chief technology officer of GigaOM. We covered quite a bit from AI and LLMs to hardware to trust. Um, Howard, this was a real pleasure. Thanks for being a part of the 7 Investing Podcast this afternoon. 
this this was great. I, I'd uh, I'd be happy to do it again. If anybody has any questions, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for tuning into this edition of our Seven Investing Podcast. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are Seven Investing. Have a great day.